Hello, and welcome to the Fit Cookie Nutrition Podcast. My name is Holly Samuel, and I am a registered dietitian and certified personal trainer. And my goal with this podcast is to empower you with nutrition and exercise knowledge from various health and wellness experts and everyday runners to become the best, strongest, fastest, fit cookie version of yourself that you can be. Are you ready? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, you are in for a real treat with today's episode where I interview Dr. Stacy Sims, who is an applied researcher, innovator, entrepreneur, and human performance specializing in sex differences in training, nutrition, environmental conditions, and so many other things. She is also the author of the very popular book called Roar with Celine Yeager as her co-author and she has been all over the place talking all things women's health and women's training, and more recently, um, menopause and how to train through menopause as an active woman. Now, <laughs> you um, may be new to the podcast, but even if you're new, I'm sure you probably understand that I love talking about the differences between training and nutrition recommendations between women and men. I've always found that in my practice, there was a big gap that we needed to fill in research. And I never really understood, you know, why we just didn't know more about this, <laughs> to be honest, in my early career as a dietitian. So when Stacey Sims came out with her book, Roar, and started to make a lot of headway in the space with this information, it was so helpful to me as a practitioner and also to me as a female. So I am a firm believer that if you are female, or if you know someone who's female, you would benefit from reading the book Roar and or checking out this conversation. Dr. Stacey Sims also has a TED Talk um, that is kind of the short and sweet version of her body of work thus far. She is also working on a bunch more really cool projects, so stay tuned for those. So until further notice, uh, I really am excited for you to listen to this episode, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Stacey Sims. Hello, Dr. Stacey Sims. It is such an honor to be welcoming you to the Fit Cookie Nutrition Podcast today. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I am super excited to have you. I've been a fan for a very long time. Actually, um, my mom will kill me if I don't bring this up. She introduced me to your book, Roar, so I have to give her credit for that. But um, I've been a fan for a long awesome. time. And I've been really excited to just keep learning from your courses and all of the different things that have come out since for since you've been very busy. <laughs> yeah, but thanks. I'm glad that people are um, finding more information for themselves. So yeah, this is awesome. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's get started. I feel like people don't need an introduction to who you are. They should know who you are, but just in case they don't, um, can you tell everyone who you are, what you do and where you're from? Yeah, so I'm an expat living in New Zealand, originally from the States, but even that, I was an army brat. Uh, 
officially Dr. Stacy Sims. So I have a PhD in uh, sex differences, environmental physiology, and nutrition. And really, that came about because of all the questions I had when I was going through undergrad and master's degree, trying to understand the female athlete a lot better and not finding any answers. We're just generalized to men, which kind of pushed both my athletic and academic career. So I am a female performance physiologist, for the most part, the easy way of saying. I look at um, female athletes, knowing that you're an athlete if you sweat for a purpose, and trying to get people to understand that there's a better way for training and nutrition so that we can maximize our performance potential instead of relying on what the generalization is from, from men. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I love, I love that background. I think when I first discovered your book, I was like, Oh, someone else thought of this already. Excellent. Because I was just kind of beginning my dietetics career as a dietitian. I was starting to understand that already. I was like, this does not work for women. All of the research that's out there. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I was like, well, someone's dedicated her life to that. So that's good. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You can just pick it up. (laughs) It's really really helpful. Thank you. Um, So how, you know, I want, there's so many things we could talk about today and I I don't have time to pick your brain about all the things I would like to pick your brain about, but I definitely want to focus on um, kind of like the menopause and that sector of athletes. Um, Yeah. I know that Oh man, like, you know, the, the females in general, in terms of athletics and sports nutrition and performance research, like that's already kind of something we don't know much about. And then it seems like the menopause sector is just, it's like people's eyes get wide and they're like deer in the headlights when you say that word and they don't know what to do. So I definitely want to dive into that today. Cause I know, um, you have been doing a lot of work, um, in that kind of topic lately. I took your menopause for athletes course, which was phenomenal. Um, and learned oh, a lot from that as well. So how did you kind of start to study the like athletic women in that sector kind of um, age range? Um, so I did my postdoc, at, <clears throat> sorry, I did my postdoc at Stanford and um, my mentor there was Marcia Stefanik. And she was one of the original principal investigators for the Women's Health Initiative. And so I was learning a lot about what was happening when women started hitting menopause and getting older, but in the data set, there are no athletic women. So I had one hand in human performance and the other hand in public health and um, older women. And I was also um, getting questions from a lot of women who were in their thirties and forties going, hey, what's going on? Some of these training plans aren't working. So I really started trying to understand that athletic age group as well, knowing what was coming down the track when people hit menopause. And when you look at some of the sedentary or recreational, meaning the 150 minutes of moderate activity that's recommended and seeing that doesn't affect body composition, it doesn't really reduce cardiovascular or diabetes. It's like, well, if you get fit enough to get into that situation, maybe it won't be so bad. That was the first kind of idea around it. And then when you start really looking into the effects of uh, female hormones and every system of the body and how they affect the brain, how they affect metabolism, and how these things change when you get into that menopause transition, there's so many different things you can do from a nutrition and training standpoint to kind of help your body be the best that it can be so you don't face the menopause, you don't face the cardiovascular risk factors that all all of a sudden hit a woman when her period starts. 
Absolutely. And actually, that's a good point. Could you, I know, again, like I said, people get doe-eyed and confused when they hear menopause. Can you define just like that word for us too, just to kind of, because there's like perimenopause and then there's menopause and then there's postmenopause. And it's a span of a pretty big chunk of time of someone's life if they're lucky enough to live that long. <laughs> um, right. Can you define yeah. that? Sure. So um, I, I've been jokingly saying that menopause is actually the birthday of your new life because- <laughs> Menopause itself is just one point on the calendar, one day of your entire life that marks 12 months of no periods. So that's just menopause. It's one day. The time before that could be five years, could be 10 years, where hormones are starting to change, ratios are starting to change. We call that perimenopause. Um, and then the point after that is postmenopause. But so much of the literature and popular media just call it all menopause. And you get one picture of what it looks like, and it's completely irrelevant, especially to the athletic population. And the most interesting part of it all, to me, being a science geek and how um, hormones affect everything, is that perimenopause state. So this can start as early as 35 or maybe as late as 50, depending on a lot of different factors, genetics and that kind of stuff. But this is where estrogen and progesterone don't quite do the same thing because their levels aren't quite the same as when you were naturally cycling and having regular periods. And this is where we start to see a lot of the changes that women talk about where their training isn't working, they're putting on belly fat, they're getting tired, they're getting slow, they aren't able to put on lean mass, they feel like they woke up, um, I can't remember anything with a lot of brain fog, and they feel squishy and they just don't feel like themselves. And all that is the affect of the hormones changing. Yeah, and it kind of starts to happen, like you said, way before like that birth, that birth date, which I love that term. That's great. <laughs> the birth date <laughs> of, the of, of the rest of your life. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it can happen several years beforehand. So I think a lot of women, again, you know, I'm in my 20s. I don't have this experience yet, but hopefully I will live long enough to have it. Um, but I know a lot of women, you know, have kind of said, yeah, like it seems like it's just a marathon, like it's just forever where these symptoms are going to be happening and when's it going to end. So I love like kind of taking it and dividing it into different sectors where there's different things happening with hormones kind of fluctuating. And I know the perimenopause state is almost like the biggest wild card because their hormones are kind of fluctuating all over the place. Exactly, exactly. And there have been a couple of funny memes going around where you have women in their you know, they're late 30s, early 40s, and they have brain fog, or they get really irritable, and people are like, is it perimenopause? And <laughs> you're like, yeah, well, actually, it could be perimenopause. And you know, women get put in these boxes of, of, oh, well, you need to be on antidepressants, you're too stressed, you're burnt out. But when we look at all the signs and symptoms of all this typical, like, adrenal fatigue and burnout, all those kinds of things, they all to those hormonal shifts that no one really understands or talks about. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, I like that you kind of talked about how it can start as early as 35. And I think that's super interesting because in, in my experience too, just working one-on-one -on -one with clients, it also seems like people don't quite get the hang of their period <laughs> until they're like right. in their 30s. Uh, and then it kind of starts <laughs> to go wonky on them, which is crazy. I know. This is so true. We're like in the 20s, like, yeah, whatever. I get my period or I'm on the pill. And then in the 30s, they quite to understand what it means and how it occurs. And then all of a sudden it goes crazy. And they're like, what? I just understood this now. Why is it going crazy? And 
people automatically go, oh, am I pregnant? Oh, am I not eating enough? Am I getting amenorrheic? Why am I, you know, why are my periods going so crazy? So of course there are contributing factors, but most of the time it's because you have that fluctuation of estrogen progesterone. Yeah. Just keeping you on your toes um, throughout your life. (laughs) So um, (laughs) in terms of like, you know, the, that shift. So like, what are some of the biggest like nutrition mistakes you see in like the peri and even postmenopausal like athletes and my, um, this podcast, typically a lot of runners listen to it. So I'm talking to a lot of endurance runners right now. Um, so like, what are some of the biggest nutrition mistakes you see? There are two really big ones. The first one is, um, not eating enough because our mentality so much from the fitness industry and the fitness media is if you start to put weight on, you're eating too much. So automatically people will stop eating and start training more. Mm-hmm. And this exacerbates the problem where you get then get put into a low energy availability state, which promotes fat gain and slow your rest, resting metabolic rate, which we know about. And then it also exacerbates a lot of the estrogenic effects because estrogen gets stored in the adipose tissue. If you're starting to lose more, gain more, then it, it affects estrogen metabolism as well. The other big one is people following trendy diets. So they're following the ketogenic diet or they're following intermittent fasting. And these are things that also screw up hormones and contribute to more of the perturbations, primarily by the effect on cortisol and keeping the body in a catabolic or breakdown state. So those are the two biggest things that I see. And when we start really dialing it down and fueling for the training itself and then seeing what age span, what are the hormones doing, then we can change the nutrition away from training to kind of match more of the, um, I guess, the point in time where they are with regards to hitting that one birthday menopause date. Gotcha. Yeah. So I think, um, I think that's interesting too. I, again, kind of people don't get the hang of their periods until they're in their thirties and then their hormones kind of shift. And also I feel like a lot of people don't really get the hold of like their diet, you know, what that looks like for them just in terms of what they eat until that Mm -hmm. period of time too. And I know like in the population I work with who are currently in that like forties, fifties, sixties age range, they've come out of, you know, kind of similar like Atkins, um, the low fat craze, a lot of them have disordered eating patterns, but it's really never been diagnosed because there just wasn't much awareness. Um, and I find that they're all under eating, <laughs> but they're yeah. at this phase of life where adding more calories is super scary. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, it's super scary for across the board, but especially, and I put myself in that as well, cause I'm in my forties and growing up with the supermodel set and the Jane Fonda leg warmer set, right. Where it's all about how much can you burn and you have to look super skinny and don't eat. And here's the grapefruit diet, all that kind of stuff. All those messages that we grew up with are still in that subconscious where, oh, oh fat's bad or, oh, I can't go over 1500 calories a day, regardless of what I'm doing. And it's, it's devastating to see um, because knowing what we know is more you eat, the better your body responds to adaptations and the better your body composition. Yeah. And the more you can do in training and then the more you can benefit from that essentially, which is, which is also a point that I like to make um, easier said than done for sure. Exactly. Um, And in terms of the body image, actually, I wanted to bring this up. You just had a study come out yesterday. Um, We're recording this on, I think, March 2nd, but there was a study that I looked at yesterday about just a survey and it wasn't in menopause aged athletes. It was in college athletes. And it talked about 
body image and sport, which I thought was super interesting. Um, my specialty is in eating disorders and disordered eating with athletics. So I was like, mm -hmm. oh, yes, data. Um, <laughs> but yeah. you know, can you tell me a little bit about that and just like some of the um, like some of the patterns that you saw that start at that younger age that probably can carry through and get us kind of dug into the hole of 1500 calorie diets and under fueling and menopause? Yeah, so it's interesting because that study was um, done on people who are like in the carded system or on the pathway to Olympics or high and stuff. And when you're looking at the younger girls that are coming into the system, they're very much influenced by um, a hierarchy within the sport. So it's what the older players or athletes have to say. Coupling that with what they've learned or haven't learned through high school and their coaches in high school and teammates in high school. So it becomes that more sociocultural pressure. And they're also seeing stuff on social media that's giving them pressure. And so there's all these different external pressures that get internalized. So when they're saying, well, I need to look like this particular person because they're the best there is in, in my sport. And then they look at some of the older athletes and what are the older athletes doing because they have more experience. And then the older athletes might say, oh, you shouldn't be eating that. Or a coach might have an offhand comment saying, oh, you still get your period, you must be too heavy. So there's some really bad toxic language within a lot of sporting cultures that influence the young girls coming into that high level sport and none of it is discussed. People might talk about it amongst themselves, but it's not really discussed. And we see a lot of it now starting to come out across the world in things like um, you know, gymnastics and rowing and that kind of stuff, the toxic culture and the impact it has on the girls. And when we start looking specifically at how that affects body image and health and the lack of education around making wise choices and the lack of communication, there's a lot of work that we all have to do to kind of unfold all the negativity that's been enveloped. Whereas we look at the general population and, and outside of the fitness, you have a lot of groups that are very positive and very well-minded and looking at how are we embracing being a woman in sport. But that is the exception to the rule when you're looking at that elite sport, toxic kind of really high-end sport environment. Yeah, super interesting. And I, 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 when you're kind of in the culture, I think it's easy to, to see some of the good and the bad. And I do think it's getting better overall. But like you said, that's still kind of the outlier, it seemed to me talking about like the average yeah. So when we're looking at like Mary Kane's story that came out um, and then you have a lot of the other runners that have come out with stories and even Jesse um, Thomas, for, who's a pro triathlete, who's talking about low energy availability and body image issues. This stuff has been around for ages, but it's just been in the past two years that it's starting to get a little bit vocal where now even um, things like women's health, they're talking about low energy availability because it's endemic across so many different like recreational athletes. And it's the pressures around trying to look a certain way, trying to have lean mass but be thin. And so there's just so many different things. And I think the more we normalize the conversation about it, the better it will be. Just kind of how the normalization of talking about your period is starting to come to the forefront. Now, if we can make menopause a normalized conversation, that's the next goal. 
That is a great goal. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's very, the comparison there is very similar, kind of like a taboo subject that like, you know, you should be ashamed of and not talk about and, and it's dumb because you want to live long so that you can go through menopause. Right. And it's going to happen right. to you. So you should probably figure out how to deal with it. <laughs> right. And like popular media doesn't help at all. I often joke with people here in New Zealand, like if you watch an American sitcom, and they'll have a family. The men are really slovenly with like big flannel shirts or they have big bellies and you know, no one ever talks about them. But the women are these petite, like skinny, 1980s looking. They may or may not have some Pilates muscle, but it's just this whole stereotype that just keeps being perpetuated in all of these TV programs. And it's like, how, how are you going to, again, affect it and stop it with that negative imagery that's coming along to say women have to be this certain way and men have to be that certain way. But then when you get to older women in those programs, they also look a certain way. And it's not at all what the younger women look like. So when someone talks about menopause, the image always goes to an older woman who might be a little bit slouched over, who has no muscle, has extra um, body fat, is always wearing heavier or looser clothing because that tends to be the normalized image of menopause. But then when you start looking at some of the um, older actresses that are coming out and talking about it, they don't have that image. So there's a little bit of the normalization of it, but still have a really long way to go. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, another thing that kind of comes up a lot, and you had mentioned this briefly with like the fad diets and how that's you know, very mainstream media, everyone's talking about keto right now and intermittent fasting. Um, and like even yeah. plant-based veganism because of the, the Netflix documentaries that have come out kind of with that, you know, in terms of like, you know, your, your expertise and what you've seen, you know, physiologically, like how would something like keto, you know, what, I, I think I know what you're going to say, but what do you think about it for women versus men? Like kind of what is the difference there? And just like, I just want to hear your, your thoughts on that. Cause that seems to be a really big one right now. Yeah. So across the board, most of these Trini diets are not good for women. When we look at um, the keto, the whole idea about the keto diet is to enhance your body's ability to burn fat and to use fat. Women are already biologically there. One, we're born with sex differences. So we have specific proteins within our muscles that allow us to burn and use more free fatty acids. Mm -hmm. um, as we get older, we have the epigenetic change that comes with estrogen that encourages our body to use more free fatty acids at rest and during exercise. There's a sex difference with fuel preferences during exercise, regardless of, of intensity, where women tend to use more amino acids and fatty acids rather than carbohydrate, and the fact that we can't carbo load like men can. So there are so many different nuances that already have women um, physiologically able to use and burn free fatty acids. The problem with keto is there isn't carbohydrate, and women need carbohydrate. And that has to do with this um, neuropeptide called kispeptin. So kispeptin really got an acumen of how there's sexual dimorphosis um, around it about five or six years ago when they started looking at suppressing it. And when we suppress kispeptin in women, it doesn't take very much of a low carbohydrate intake or low calorie intake to suppress it. 
And when you suppress it, then you don't get any endocrine function. You start to have your thyroid turning down. You don't have a luteinizing hormone pulse. You have anovulatory cycles. Everything slows down and your periods stop. But for men, the threshold is way different. So we look at the threshold for that pepsin suppression and men can go without food and calories and carbohydrate for a lot longer period of time than women before it's suppressed. So when we look at intermittent fasting, ketogenic diet, all of these things wreak havoc on a lot of the essential feedback mechanisms that are responsible for keeping women healthy. And that's not really talked about again because the data comes out from male participants and then again, just generalized. And when you look at the general population and people who are promoting um, intermittent fasting and the ketogenic diet for longevity, they're ignoring the exercise component. And when you start putting exercise into the mix, the exercise stress supersedes what that um, nutritional stress might do and allows women to have the same longevity benefits as something like intermittent fasting. And if you are looking at the ketogenic diet, if you want to hit intensities and perform well to get adaptations from your training, the ketogenic diet is not the way to go because it does not enhance performance and it doesn't allow you to hit intensities unless you take carbohydrate in. Mm -hmm. Thank you for diving into that. Yeah, and I think I think it just illustrates like the classic example. I used to have um, a couple of my other jobs where I was, you know, back when I used to see people in person. Um, <laughs> when that used pre-COVID, to be, pre-COVID, yeah. <laughs> you know, I used to have couples who would come into the gym facility that I worked at, and they would do this program together, and the men would lose, you know, 20 pounds and they'd be like, yeah, all I did was small adjustments that, you know, we've all learned about in, in research and coaching and whatnot. And the women are like, you know, yeah, I did that too. Plus like, you know, a hundred percent more and I gained five pounds, you know, like what yeah. the heck. So I yeah. think it's, it's, it's so predictable just from like having so much experience seeing people in that state, but to hear it kind of like in black and white and kind of what happens in the body physiologically, super helpful. So we need to put a like a, a combined talk together so that we can get it pushed out in fitness industry so people will stop promoting intermittent fasting and ketogenic diets for women. Yeah, and sometimes together, which is wild. Yeah. Oh, I know. I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh man, it's like keto, intermittent fasting, and like fasted cardio. It's like the trifecta that I hate uh, for yes. women. But <laughs> yes. Um, and then in terms of like, even just to generalize it even more, cause I, I hear this a lot in like the, the fitness space and in the diet culture space where it's like, okay, you just need to eat less and move more. Like, how do you, what do you say about that for men, women in menopause who are like athletic? Oh, I hate that. I put that, like, I, um, often say, you know, there's a, there's the fitness industry that is promoting things to make you fat, tired, slow, and unhealthy. And people are like, what? And I'm like, they tell you to eat less, move more, and try the three diets. And they're like, what? I was like, yeah, if you eat less, then that slows your body down. Move more, what kind of movement are you doing? Like walking isn't going to do much. It's still too low intensity to actually instigate any change. So when we talk about what are you doing and how are you eating, it's a whole overhaul. And we have the research and the science to back it up, but the messaging isn't getting out there. Which is where you come into where you're having podcasts and you're talking about it, where you're like, we need to lift heavy stuff. We need to do some high intensity work. If that's the kind of movement we want to do. We're going to make sure that we fuel everything. 
we want to uptick our protein. We want to look at carbohydrates coming from fruit and veg, especially for our gut. And that's the other thing the ketogenic diet gets to me. It's like people start talking about gut health and they're not feeding their gut the stuff it needs because they're not eating fruit and veg. Sorry, that was a side tangent, but that's no, another. That's, that was great. No, it's yeah. like, I take my, you know, my like MCT oil with a probiotic and I'm like, well, it's not getting fed. So I don't know those probiotics are just going to go die. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know. And it's not affecting the bacteria you want to affect anyway. We don't care about the upper part. We can't care about the bottom part that needs the fiber. Yeah. 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 And they're all like, they're all really expensive supplements too. So you're really not doing yourself any favors there. I know. Your wallet. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We could have a cup and be like, just deposit your supplement money here. It's a scholarship for someone to learn. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think um, I do want to definitely touch upon the training piece. I'm a personal trainer too. And I, that part of um, the course I took from you, the menopause for athletes course, that was just like brand new information, like stuff I just had not learned before in conventional training, because you don't, because yeah. you learn what works for men um, or what yeah. works for general population who's not very athletic and is trying to just become more active. So that was a lot of it was reviewed, but a lot of it was brand new to kind of put in context in terms of the training schedule for the week where you have a couple back-to-back hard days um, and just some of the differences there. So I definitely want to dive into that. And one of the things I'll start with um, is like what kind of the same question, what are some of the biggest mistakes you see uh, women in menopause make with training? They do too many high intensity sessions. Like they're boot camp, then CrossFit, then boot camp, then CrossFit, then spin class. Cause they're all like, oh, you know, I'm putting on this belly fat. I need to burn it off. So it's high intensity, high intensity, high intensity. Or the other way around where it's long, slow, steady stuff all the time. And no one's lifting weights unless it's in a boot camp. So those are the two extremes. And the two extremes are not good in either spectrum. Cause you always end up in this gray area where it's, too hard to be easy for recovery and adaptation and it's too easy to be that top end hard part that you want for really strong muscle and metabolic adaptations yeah absolutely it's it's definitely it's definitely different than what you hear and it's different than what classes are even offered like they're all an hour long so they're not really high intensity classes you know they're kind of somewhere in the in the burnout zone to be honest Um, right and, you know, they're also not lifting super heavy weights because it's just not cohesive to do that in a class setting for the most part in terms of equipment. So I like that you, your thing, you know, and, you know, we will call it lift heavy stuff on the podcast. Yes, exactly. Um, is, you know, lifting heavier. So can you talk a little bit about, because I know a lot of my, my runners who are listening, maybe they got into running a little bit later in life, or maybe they have been running for a long time, but they never really have done the strength training thing. Um, even though maybe they hear that they should be doing it for me or other people. So like, what would you say to those people who are kind of, they're not starting from a base of like strength background? Um, like, Mm -hmm. you you know, where, where would you start them? That would make sense in terms of like starting where they're at. Um, so yeah, we usually look at starting with mobility work and seeing range of motion and then throwing in some body weight stuff. So getting people to understand what a full range of motion squat is, how do you move? What does it feel like to get into those positions and movement before we even put them in a gym with a bar? 
Um, from there, start putting in some more plyometric work. So it's uh, box jumps or, or squat jumps and tucks and that kind of stuff to get used to some of the high intensity body weight movement. And so we phase people in that way. When I say we, it's a group of, of us that are, are getting women to understand what movement is like and understanding that it doesn't take away from running. In fact, it actually enhances running because of the changes that are happening. You're getting more fast twitch going, you're getting stronger postural muscles, you're developing core strength that helps you um, with your running economy. And when we get that under the belt for about a month, then we start introducing them to a barbell going, okay, this is a barbell. This is how you do a deadlift. This is how you do a squat. I'm not going to make anyone do a snatch or overhead squat or any of those Olympic lifts, but really getting them to understand what it means to move with a barbell. And that can be heavy enough when you start. And then as you start getting that movement and the functionality, you start adding weight in. And it's not something to be afraid of. It's not like going to the weight room at 5 or 6 p.m. on a weekday afternoon and spending an hour and a half there with all the muscle head guys. It's like, okay, I have 20 minutes before my run and I want to lift some stuff. And maybe you're starting with um, some single leg uh, kettlebell um, uh, Romanian deadlifts type thing. So you're really activating and preparing your body to run, but you're also lifting. And we also know that if you run first and then lift, then the strength signals stay. If you lift first and then run, then it's more the endurance signals that stay. So you are, if you are lifting heavy first, you're still getting the messaging and you're still getting the neuromuscular connection, then you can tie it directly to your running performance. If your goal is to put muscle mass on, then you want to do the lifting away from the running and the cardiovascular stuff. But it could only be 20 or 25 minutes. We're not talking about a long time. And when people start to understand that and start incorporating it and seeing the difference it makes, they're not as tired, they're getting um, better functionality, they're getting better running times, they're feeling stronger, they can run hills stronger, then it just feeds forward in a positive manner. We are going to take a minute to thank our sponsor for today's episode, which is Inside Tracker. Now, if you guys are new to the podcast or if you've been around for a while, you know how much I love Inside Tracker and how much I believe in this product. Use it on myself, my family members, my friends, and my clients at Fit Cookie Nutrition. When you do what you love, like running, racing, or just enjoying the great outdoors and life in general, you probably want to do it for life. You want to have longevity in the activities that your body can do, right? Well, Inside Tracker can help. Inside Tracker was founded in 2009 by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics. Using their patented algorithm, Inside Tracker analyzes your body's data to provide you with a clear picture of what's going on inside you and to offer you science backed recommendations for positive diet and lifestyle changes. Now, Inside Tracker focuses on what you can add to your diet rather than what you can take away, which I love as a dietitian. Then, Inside Tracker tracks your progress every day, every step of the way toward reaching your performance goals and living a longer, healthier life that you love. For a limited time, Fit Cookie Nutrition subscribers get 25% off of the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to the link in the show notes, which is insidetracker.com slash fitcookie to get 25% off of the entire store. Now let's get back to Dr. Sims.
Thank you. That was really helpful. Yeah. Just in terms of like, cause I know a lot of women, you know, they're like, well, I'm not used to deadlifting. So what do I do? Do I just go deadlift hundred pounds right off the bat? Like I'm going to hurt myself. So I'm not even going to try. And then they right. kind of end up not doing anything. And I think it's important to say, no, we have to start with the mobility and the body weight and the stuff that you're going to think, oh, this is pathetic. I can't even, but no, like you have to start where you're at. Um, yeah. And I think like, you know, there's people, you know, myself included, I've kind of been in strength sports for most of my life. I rode horses, I worked on farms, I did that kind of thing, and then got into the endurance cardio stuff a little bit later. And I think there's other people who have flopped it and just the strength and the gym intimidation um, is very real and it's very hard for them to start. And what would you say to, for someone, um, you talked about this a lot in your course, like someone who is used to running all the miles, all the long, slow distance. Um, you know, when they're kind of entering this phase of life where they think, oh, I'm gaining weight, I better just run more miles and I better, you know, eat less. And we kind of address the nutrition piece of things, but what should they do in terms of training? Should they just keep running more miles and incorporate? Definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> now we tend to look at it as, um, like, what are you doing for a two week block? And then you have a one week of more recovery because as we get older, we also need more recovery. And so in that two week block during the week, when people are time crunched, we're looking at complementing heavy lifting with some high intensity stuff. And when I'm talking high intensity, I mean that top end, the whole session might take 30 minutes and that's for the warm up and the cool down. And people will freak out. They're like, well, what about my long, slow stuff? It's like, well, you know, you do your high intensity back it up two days a week and then you have um, like a very easy, easy, very, very low, embarrassingly slow 30 minute jog. And then you do a little bit more high intensity stuff. And then on the weekend, one of those days, you're doing a tempo run. So it's not long, 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 but you're doing a relatively intense run. And then every 10 to 14 days, you're doing the long, slow stuff that you need for like an ultra run or a marathon. It's the high intensity and the lifting that we lose and the ability to maintain when we hit menopause and go through menopause transition and hit postmenopause. And those are the essential things we need for running performance or for actually for any kind of performance. Otherwise, you just get slower and slower and slower. And most people's natural response to getting slower and slower is I better run some more because I'm not as fit. And it's a, it's a counterintuitive when you hear go high intensity and lift heavy to do an ultra. Mm -hmm. But this is exactly what older women need to do because you're already, like I said, already predisposed to being able to go long and slow. You're not able to go have any power. You're not able to be strong. So those are the key metrics you need to work on to enhance your, your long run. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, it, it makes sense when you spell it out very eloquently like that. But I think when people think of it, it's, you know, it's counterintuitive. They think, oh, I got to run more and longer to run a longer race. And I think like, you know, it's helpful if an endurance athlete has maybe a good base of like that kind of training in their younger years to then switch yep. over to high intensity and heavier lifting. Um, like, what would you say to someone? And I can think of a few examples, even in some of my clients who maybe they started like the endurance aspect more like 10k half marathon full marathon training like in their 40s and they just don't have a long history of that would you recommend like a similar type of training would you recommend like periodizing it slightly differently um so i would look at it you know if we start talking about snc stuff where we're going microcycles macrocycles right so if we're looking at the micro periodization and in this case it could be a two-week block 
you're looking specifically on, okay, we can boost VO2 in some of the high intensities. And so if we're working on that VO2 work and our strength work, then when we get to the long, slow stuff, then it benefits that. So you're looking at the two week and then during the deload or the recovery week, that's technique, running drills, um, strength, you know, strength training type drills and stuff. So you're getting all the functional movement, you're working on mobility, you're totally recovering the body. And then the next two week block might be um, some of the anaerobic stuff. So it's not the VO2, it's a little bit more intense. And then after those two blocks, then you're like, okay, well, I need a little bit more time on the feet. So during the deload week or the recovery week, in the middle, instead of having a moderate intensity day, that's where you, where you put in a long run like on the Wednesday, and then on the Sunday, you back it up with another long run. Yeah. So one could be a tempo, one could be one of the two to three hour, like just time on the feet, super slow stuff. But the aspect of that happening during the deload week is then you're fresh. Mm -hmm. So your mechanics are better. Yeah, mechanics are better. And also I like that you touched on like how some of the, these recoveries, like they need to be embarrassingly slow. Like they need to be- at a slow pace. I have a lot of um, athletes, clients, people I just hear about, you know, out in the running world who are afraid to run slow. And I think to your point, you're, you're trying to make the point of, well, you know, you're going to be running so hard on these like short, high intensity interval kind of stuff, whether it's running or on the bike or something like that, you know, you're going to really welcome that slow pace on those recovery right. days. Right. It's uh, you have to go slow to be fast. We had that a lot when um, I was, I raced bikes professionally for a while and the recovery ride, like we'd have sponsors and stuff come and they try to drill us on the hill because they could keep up. We're like, no, no, this is a hundred watt watt ride. This is super, super slow. And so when you're riding in that professional realm, you really see the polarization of what's hard and what's easy. But when you're talking general population who might be looking at a professional, they don't quite understand what that polarization is, where that embarrassingly slow run or ride is power walkers could probably pass you, but you shouldn't care because you're not trying to race them. You're looking at what is best for my training to get me to where I want to be. Yeah. Yeah. You're kind of taking the, the comparison ego game out of it in the moment so that you can look at the big picture. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really, again, easier said than done to, to definitely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and in terms of like the, the you had mentioned like you know when women go into the peri and kind of menopausal stages of life women already and this is kind of how I like to explain it just in layman's terms is like women you know caveman days like we the the muscle mass is not important for survival like the body fat is whereas for the men they have to chase chase the tiger out of the cave you know muscle mass much more important so in terms of like preserving muscle mass and trying to even build on it. And I know with that comes bone density too, in this phase of life, um, like what kind of happens if you could explain briefly in terms of like metabolism, you mentioned like protein and fatty acids are used for fuel, which means muscle mass breakdown. We're not eating enough anyway, that happens even more. Like how, what would you say to implement to kind of combat that from a general um, standpoint? Well, the basic um, aspect of physiology is to remember that you can't build muscle unless you have abundance. You cannot trigger the gene to turn on to actually create more muscle mass if you don't have enough. And this is a whole idea of, um, you know, the men lean up and get fitter and faster in times of not so much. Because actually back then, they are the ones who are getting the calories and eating more than the women. 
And so menstrual cycle stops, you put on body fat. So when we start talking about what we need to do to preserve lean mass, gain lean mass, is not only do you have to give it the exercise stress of lifting and plyometrics, because that um, helps give you that stress that your body's like, hey, wait, I need to build muscle to overcome this. Um, but you also need to back it up with abundance of food. I don't mean like overly, <laughs> overly eating type abundance, but enough that your body's like, okay, I have fuel to create this new muscle tissue and overcome the stress. And I have fuel to keep my endocrine system going. So it, again, it's looking at in the moment, what are you doing? We need that heavy, strong stimulus and we need to back it up with the appropriate protein dosage so that we have the amino acids building muscle. And then the other aspect of that high intensity and the plyometric work is it reduces the problems that older women have with insulin and the lack of sensitivity to it. So we start to become more um, insulin intolerant, carbohydrate intolerant. So if you're doing the high intensity work, then it changes some of the um, aspects of like opening more glute 4 proteins, which are transport mechanisms for, for carbohydrate to get into the muscle without insulin. So when you're looking at what am I doing and why, it's getting that functional lean mass, strong lean mass going. And in that you're also building bone because if you're doing plyometric, you're getting multi-directional stress. And then the food creates a, that um, abundance aspect that your body needs to turn the signaling on to develop bone, to develop lean mass and to get strong. Yeah. So it's, I, I think it's like important to say too, like you can't, like you're trying to say, you can't just, you know, you can't build muscle mass out of like nothing. Like it's not just going to appear. Right. Um, and right. you can't really expect to turn all the fat you currently have into muscle mass. It doesn't quite work that way either. You still have to feel, your body has to feel safe enough and like it has enough on board. Exactly. Exactly. For like and, a long period of time too. <laughs> right, right, right. And the people are like, oh, I eat enough. I eat X amount of calories in a day. I'm like, it doesn't matter the 24 hour calorie intake. It matters when and what you're eating around stress. So even if you eat two to 3000 calories in a day because you're uh, training for a marathon or a triathlon, if you're not eating in and around training, your body still stays in a breakdown state which signals there's not enough fuel on board. So you're not going to get those training adaptations. So when we started encountering people who are resistant to eating in and around training, I keep going, well, why? This is when your body needs it. Don't back end it and wake up and be like, I'm going to do fasted training and then delay everything because you're busy. And then finally you have lunch at one o'clock and then you're starving again at three and then you're starving again at five and then you have a bedtime snack because that promotes that fat gain. And it doesn't matter... For the fact that you're eating late in the afternoon, it's for the fact that you didn't take care of your body when it needed to be taken care of. Yes, I wish I could just, we just need to like broadcast that from the sky. Um, yeah. <laughs> I hear that daily. That's such a common pattern. And a lot of it too is resonated with like, oh, fasted cardio is the best for you. Intermittent fasting is going to help you lose weight, but it makes no sense. <laughs> no. Especially for women, especially when perimenopausal women with higher cortisol levels, if you're doing fasted or intermittent fasting, especially fasted cardio, you're driving cortisol levels up even more and then not eating to counter it. It just gets you in this vicious cycle. And then you start seeing all like the visceral body fat, so that big deep belly fat coming and losing lean mass. And it's because your body's in, under so much stress. And all you need to do is fuel it, fuel it, reduce the stress. Yeah. And I think too, like another kind of 
consequence of that pattern where you're setting yourself up to kind of almost binge at the end of the day if you're so hungry because you haven't fueled like the stressful event at the beginning of the day. And then you've also probably had stressful events all throughout the day if you have all these responsibilities, um, you know, is also to eat a large quantity at night and then it affects your sleep, you know, even more yes. so than the hormonal fluctuation. So you know, kind of what would you say in terms of like, if you could pick like one or two things, like what would you say would be helpful in terms of improving sleep in women in this, in this group? Um, don't eat two hours before bed mm -hmm. is like one of the number one things to start implementing. And then good sleep hygiene habits where it's cool, you're using tart cherry juice or um, adaptogens to help with that that sympathetic drive that people get into. So it just brings cortisol down, brings core temperature down, increases melatonin production and having, you know, like some white noise or a cool room to sleep in. So those are all really good general sleep hygiene practices. But once people stop eating with that, in that two hour window before bed, they're like, oh my gosh, I was able to sleep through the night because digestion takes parasympathetic response. And this is what we want when we sleep. So if it's being pulled to digestion, our sleep is very interrupted and it's not very good quality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think too, I know <laughs> um, I've heard this a lot. A lot of, you know, a lot of women will use like a glass of wine or like a, an alcoholic drink too, to kind of help wind down at the end of the night, which like I do it too. Like we've all been there. It's, it's, it's a great habit. Right. Um, but it also doesn't affect sleep. Well, you know, it might help you fall asleep right. quickly, but it doesn't help you stay asleep. And it kind of feeds into that process as well. And wine and alcohol trigger night sweats. So women who are having bad vasomotor symptoms, if they're having wine with dinner or before bed, then they're definitely not going to sleep well because they're going to have the trigger mechanism for, whoa, night sweat. Yeah. yeah, it's like the perfect storm. Um, yes. And I know, you know, the adaptogens are a really interesting topic too. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things that women can use. I mean, do you have like a favorite or do you have like a certain um, like resource even that you could send people to, to learn more about that? Cause I know it's kind of like, again, one of those weird subjects people don't know a lot about, but it's talked about a lot. <laughs> I know. Um, so adaptogens are interesting because uh, they're, you basically plant molecules that work with your body's natural responses. So if we're trying to dial down stress, then we're looking for ashwagandha or rhodiola, which are both pretty calming. If you're looking for cognitive focus, then you want to look for some that are more, um, they work more neurotransmitters to kind of activate the brain. And you don't want to take something like Shishandra before bed. Um, there are some good web platforms from the NIH that talk about it and they're complementary alternative medicine. Um, if you go to the Mayo Clinic and you put in adaptogens and it comes up some really good information as well. I wouldn't follow typical blogs when you put in adaptogen because then, you know, there's all sorts of stuff all over the place. Um, yeah, so I mean, I've dug through the NIH and the complementary alternative medicine websites to find published research on it. I was first exposed to them again at Stanford with a mentor there who was doing a lot of the research at Columbia. And it's there, but again, it's one of those things that's not talked about because it's not pushed by a pharmaceutical company. It's not that mainstream. It is starting to get a lot of ground, which is fantastic. Um, but I think the biggest way to start would either go to NIH or go to the Mayo Clinic. 
go to their website, their ed education aspect of their website, because they have a list of A to Z, and you can just go adaptogens, and it'll come up with a list of them, and you can read about them. Yeah, and kind of like you said, see which one kind of suits what you're trying to go for. If you're having like more fatigue, brain fog, you know, the the Shashandra would be a good one to take, but not at night for obvious reasons. Yeah. Um, I did have someone do that, and I was like, oh no, sorry. Oh. <laughs> yeah. She was like, yeah, my sleep was terrible. I was like, okay, morning. Um, sorry, did not yeah. clarify that. Um, and then <laughs> <laughs> the ashwagandha and like maca and some of the other ones too can be beneficial for other purposes. But I know it's a very like there's so many out there and they're pretty cool to learn about because like you said, they work with the body instead of, um, you know, kind of altering it like medication would. Exactly, exactly. Awesome. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it, just to kind of summarize, it definitely sounds like, you know, in terms of menopause, you know, we, we need carbohydrates still, so we shouldn't be cutting them out, but we need to do things like strength training and high intensity interval training to be able to access those carbohydrates and use them a little bit better. Um, we tend to, you know, lose muscle mass anyway in the aging process and even more so if we're in a catabolic state. So we need to eat enough in order to build that muscle mass and also prioritize protein intake. Um, and I know that's something that, you, you know, you, you've talked about a lot in, in Roar and also in, you know, some of your other courses is just prioritizing like the protein timing as well. Um, yeah. Did you have anything to say about like dosing in terms of protein intake? Since I know there's a lot right now about protein intake too in mainstream media. Yeah. So I, I kind of sit back at mainstream and I kind of like, what are you talking about? So like chocolate milk and stuff, right? That's all based on male data, not enough protein in there for women. Women need more protein across the board, um, especially post-exercise because we need more circulating amino acids. As we get older and go through the uh, menopause transition, we definitely need more protein for signaling the mass development, but also for helping with central nervous system fatigue, brain fog, those kinds of things. But there was a study that was written about on like Healthline or something like that. And they're saying, oh, well, we had women and men do a 20, a 30, um, a 20 and a 30 gram dose of protein post-exercise. And there were young and old men and women. And they said that the older women didn't have any response to the 20 or 30. So it probably wasn't that important for older women to have protein post-exercise. I was like, no, you need 40. You need 40 to get the stimulus. You didn't do it high enough. And so it was just the scope that they were taking. Oh, you didn't have a response. So you probably don't need it. It's like, I would look at it and be like, you didn't have a response because the dose wasn't high enough. And we know that women need around that 40 gram mark post-exercise to get some of the same aspects. And there's more and more research coming out showing that older women need a higher dose of protein as compared to younger women, even the same age match men. And that's something that, again, that isn't talked about in the fitness world because they don't want to talk about aging. Because mm -hmm. when you're aging, then you're not this like strong, viral, young dude that's going to conquer the world. So, yeah. Yeah, that sex appeal doesn't sell as well when you're aging, right? No, no. <laughs> well, I like that you mentioned that too. I think the 40 gram dose is, it's like, it's hard for, I think a lot of people to get and they don't really know what it looks like in my experience. And I know too, um, just with like, 
you know, kind of back to the body image and how women perceive themselves and how they think maybe they shouldn't be strength training because they're going to get bulky. And do they really need the protein supplements? Is that going to make them bulky? Um, and I, I think it's important to say, no, like you need those just to stimulate anything. <laughs> right, exactly. Unless you're taking extra testosterone, rarity to get really super bulky. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think most of them are doing that. So nothing to worry no. about there. Right, right. <laughs> um, awesome. Well, I, I, that was a great conversation. I know there were a lot of nuggets for people to kind of pick up on. Did you have anything else to add or anything that you definitely think is super important for women in this age group to understand? Um, I think one of the biggest things is that we get so much pushback about, you know, being perimenopause or aging and stuff. And just remember that it's a Western construct. Because if you go to other cultures, there isn't necessarily a word for menopause or hot flash. It's just an aspect of being older. And a lot of women are embracing the fact that, hey, now I don't have periods anymore. I don't have to worry about it. So it's always like when someone pushes back with a negative comment about getting older, just think of it in a positive light of all the things that you can do to have a quality of life. And you don't have to spend hours in the gym doing it. That's the other thing. It's like instead of having to do long, slow stuff all the time, short stuff in and out, and you have more time for the rest of your life. Yeah, and you 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 need it to not take as much time for that reason. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Awesome, I love that. Well, um, I want to ask you the end of the podcast question, but before I do that, where can people find you? I know you're active on social media, but where can people find you and your resources that you have to offer? Um, so website and social media are both uh, Dr. Stacy Sims, um, website, of course, .com. And then uh, for like academic research stuff, you can do a Google Scholar search or look me up on Google Scholar because then all the links and everything to all the projects I'm doing are there. Awesome. Yeah. Published research. She's dedicated her life to this, guys. You really need to go check her out because she knows what she's talking about. Um, <laughs> so thanks. <laughs> Yeah, definitely, definitely love it. And I, I definitely recommend your book and your and your resources to everyone. And usually I'm like, if you are female or if you like know someone who is female, you should go check her out. Um, <laughs> so thanks. That falls on the everyone umbrella. But let me ask you the end of the podcast question, which I'm super curious to know your answer. Um, so basically you are about to finish like your dream day kind of race. Um, I'm assuming probably a run or a bike. I know you like to cycle, um, you know, what song is playing at the finish line to embody how you're feeling in that moment of victory? Oh, this is, yeah, uh, that's a good question, but I'm a Daft Punk fan. And yeah. so Daft Punk, lucky. Nice. Oh my gosh. Tends to, yeah. Tends to, um, it somehow it always ended up coming up on a lot of the races and so it would get stuck in my head and then, you know, Aside from the story that it's really about this, you know, you're lucky and, and you're enjoying life. That's what it's about. So. I yeah. love that answer. That's great. I love this question because basically I'm just putting together the best playlist ever like to take with me on runs. So that's, there you go. I don't have that one yet. And I should, because I've heard that at many finish lines and that's a really, that's a really good. There one. you go. There you go. At it. And unfortunately they broke up after 28 years. Mm -hmm. So sad. Uh, but their music will live on. Let's say you have to relish in, in what exists. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And I'm excited to see what else you have in store for us. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me and passing the word. Awesome.
Dr. Sims, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciated and felt honored to get to have that conversation with you. And I hope everyone else enjoyed as well. If you are looking for highly individualized nutrition and training advice, and you are a runner, I am taking clients in my one-on-one coaching program um, starting in about a month or so. So you can head over to the link in the show notes to join the waitlist if you are interested in coaching, or you can head over to fitcookienutrition.com and fill out the form on the homepage there. I love working with female athletes so that they can be in charge of their physiology using some of the concepts and research outcomes that Dr. Sims and I talked about today. And I am always learning about this topic because it's ever changing, as you might have realized just listening to that conversation for the past hour. If you guys are enjoying this podcast, I would really appreciate a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast host you are currently using so that other people, other women, other people who know women just like you can find the show and benefit from conversations like this. Until next time, guys, happy running and women are not small men. Thank <laughs> you.